This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Denver just decriminalized psychedelic mushrooms. And a lot of people are asking, now what? We're going to try to answer that and other questions you have about Ballot Initiative 301, which voters just barely passed last week. In fact, our first question is about that Election Day drama. On Instagram, someone wanted to know, was the measure expected to pass? With that answer, here's my colleague Avery Lill. It depends on who you asked and when. For context, in 2018, Decriminalized Denver tried to get a similar ballot initiative on the ballot, but they didn't get enough signatures. This year, they got more than 5,000 signatures, the measure made it onto the ballot, and when the city of Denver opened up the initiative for public comment, no one filed a public comment against it, so proponents were feeling pretty good about the momentum going into the vote. But on last Tuesday night when those votes started coming in, it looked like the nay votes had it, it looked like it wasn't going to pass. It wasn't until Wednesday when the final tally came in that the yes votes had squeaked ahead by 2,000 votes, so that's just about a half a percent of the people who voted. Now, several folks wanted to know more about what the measure actually does. The kind of thing your civics teacher might have told you to look up beforehand. But we've got your back. So one question was, what does 301 say about growing mushrooms? And Maria Wad takes on this answer. She's the host of CPR's upcoming podcast, On Something, Life After Legalization. The language of the ballot specifically says this will decriminalize the possession, use, and cultivation of mushrooms. Um, What that means is that the city can't use any funding to prosecute you for growing mushrooms. Officers are going to consider it a pretty low arrest priority. And at worst, you would get a small fine. Another Instagram user wants to know if this ordinance paves the way for decriminalization of other drugs. You're going to hear birds in the background because Anne was outside when she answered this for us. It's starting to look that way. I think it's important to remember that psilocybin mushrooms are a Schedule One substance under the Controlled Substances Act, just like marijuana is. Um, and obviously in the past several years, we've had a gradual rethinking of uh, how to regulate marijuana So it's starting to look like we're having that conversation not only about psilocybin mushrooms, but yeah, I wouldn't necessarily be surprised if we started talking about decriminalizing other types of drugs in the near future as well. Decriminalize Denver, the group behind the ballot initiative, grounded their campaign in potential medical benefits of psilocybin. Along those lines, someone asked, what are the national implications of this regarding research and medicine? The answer is nothing. 301 really just decriminalizes having them, growing them, eating them. It does not change the fact that they are a controlled substance, a Schedule 1 controlled substance. Um, They are very federally illegal. Um, So this is a very teeny tiny incremental change in policy. It's worth noting that Johns Hopkins University has been researching this for almost two decades. And last year, the FDA granted a psilocybin-based treatment for depression breakthrough therapy status, which puts it on an expedited path. Johns Hopkins has found evidence that psilocybin may help treat some forms of anxiety and depression. But the DEA is clear. Large amounts of psilocybin can cause panic attacks and psychosis, and an overdose can be deadly. Now to our last question. What's the correlation between legalizing drugs and Colorado's homeless population? Donna Bryson answers. She's housing and hunger reporter for Denverite. And she says the connection isn't what you might expect. And I talked to people living in homelessness, and a couple of times people have told me this, that they lost their housing because of marijuana and that marijuana came in. It's part of the reason that our economy has been booming and that's why rents went up. 
and you hear that from people living in homelessness, people who've, who've lived in Denver all their lives, it's not as if they've come here, but who feel that they're homeless because the economy has boomed and their job, their wages have not kept up with it, and they blame marijuana for the boom. If you have more questions about magic mushrooms, we're happy to try and answer them. We are News CPR on Instagram, or you can email us those questions, news at CPR.org, news at CPR.org. Now, voters in Denver aren't done yet. The runoff election to decide not just the mayor, but six other offices is June 4th, and that means the campaigns continue. Denverites David Sachs is here with some insight. Hello again. Hi, Ryan. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for being with us. So in the mayor's race, both the incumbent Michael Hancock and his runoff challenger, Jamie Gillis, held rallies on Tuesday. You were at both. Uh, What are your impressions about the momentum? So Mayor Hancock's was first. It was at Civic Center Park, and it was a little more muted compared to Jamie's, uh, Jamie Gillis's, who was across the street on the steps of the city and county building where Hancock's office actually is. They were one after another. And um, there was more of a rah-rah-rah feel at Jamie Gillis's, which um, I guess might be expected when you're talking about someone who might be forging a change in the city. Uh, I should say that there were some big-name endorsements on Tuesday. Former Denver mayors Wellington Webb and John Hickenlooper re-endorsed Hancock going into the runoff. Uh, Here's Hickenlooper, of course, who went on to become governor, of course, and is now running for president. I think we need a mayor who has the the experience in creating jobs, in, in expanding workforce opportunities, and making sure that Denver's prosperity is shared more equitably by everyone, making sure that nobody is left behind. Uh, I don't know anyone else, I can't think of anyone else, who is better positioned to deliver on those needs for the next four years than soon to be re-elected our present mayor, Michael Hancock. Again, if I'm right, Dave, this was not a new endorsement, but a recommitment. That's right. Yeah, okay. And uh, those endorsements didn't help Hancock clinch the May election. How important do you consider those going into the runoff? I think they could be somewhat important because uh, Wellington Webb and, and John Hickenlooper know a lot of people, and maybe they can motivate their bases. But it's probably not as important as uh, who turns out in the uh, runoff election, because in 2011, Mayor Hancock, he won in a runoff, and actually more people voted in that election than, than in the general election. So it depends who shows up. Turn It's a new race, and, and so that's a big deal. Yeah, that's a really important point. It's a new race, and there will be people, if uh, past his prologue, who vote in the runoff who didn't vote in the general, I guess. It's very yeah. possible, yeah. Okay. Meanwhile, uh, Jamie Gillis now has the support of her former rivals in the race, Penfield Tate and Lisa Calderon. Here's Gillis. So imagine the greatness of Denver when people are the priority, when the welfare of our city's present and our future is about how we serve community first. The status quo is not working and we need change. What is the math here for Gillis? So about 61 percent of people did not vote for uh, Michael Hancock in the general election, meaning that uh, the door is theoretically open for Gillis. And so she's done something interesting. She's recruited her former opponents, Penfield Tate and Lisa Calderon, um, and uh, ideally in her eyes, uh, some, some of their base. Um, so, so the question is, will all of their base vote for Jamie Gillis or not? Um, th- there's room for her to win this thing if they do. 
Now, uh, it's not just the uh, two of them. How are Hancock and Gillis trying to distinguish them? Now that it is just the two of them, rather, how are they trying to distinguish themselves from one another? Uh, The big one is experience. Um, Michael Hancock said yesterday, um, as did Hickenlooper, and and Webb that, you know, he's run this city for eight years. He's managed 11,000 employees. Um, so he's going to he's going to tout his experience a lot. And Jamie Gillis um, actually said yesterday she she's she would have more experience than Michael Hancock um, coming into c- did when he came into office. And, you know, that's a little bit of politicking, but she has had 16 years of sort of uh, community engagement and neighborhood consulting and working in um, urban planning uh, realms. Another way is homelessness. Um, both are against Initiative 300, which would have repealed the urban camping ban. Um, but Jamie Gillis sort of tried to thread the needle a little bit and said, well, I'm against the, the urban camping ban. Um, I'm sorry, I'm against the sweeps of homeless people off the streets in Denver, but um, but uh, but I'm also against the urban camping. I'm also against I-300. So um, Michael Hancock is going to say that's kind of a cop out. That's what he was saying yesterday. He's going to challenge her um, on this idea because he's been steadfastly against I-300 since the beginning. Um, Jamie's also going to challenge the mayor on growth. Um, She she sees growth and development in Denver as unfettered. And um, that's something that will probably strike a lot of chords with voters. And I'm guessing based on a Facebook video that surfaced yesterday uh, in which Jamie Gillis could not say what the NAACP NAACP stood for that Michael Hancock could try to seize on that. Um, she did know what the organization does, but couldn't name. Um, couldn't say what the couldn't acronym say what meant. the acronym meant. Right. I should note that Denver voters will also be deciding runoffs for five city council seats as well as the clerk and recorder. Uh, on the June ballot, there's also an entirely new question. The Let Denver Vote initiative would require voters to approve any effort by the city to court the Olympics. Uh, that, of course, could have statewide implications because presumably those Olympic venues get into the mountain communities. I wonder if you think that might influence who votes in this runoff. It definitely could. We learned in the general election that um the, the big issues of homelessness and mushrooms really drove people to the polls. I spoke with a lot of people on Election Day telling me that's why they're out to vote today. And um, some people actually didn't even vote for mayor, but they voted for those initiatives. So that's possible. Um, but, you know, Denver isn't in the running for the games anytime in the future. So it's not quite as sexy. Um, it still could push people out to vote, though. We'll see. So it might be more symbolic at this point, you're saying. Right. Okay. Um, the May election saw the most voters in decades. Ultimately, what do you think will be the deciding factor in the vote for mayor? I think turnout, again, is a, is a big deal. Who turns out? Mayor Michael Hancock is saying that he, he's going to depend on people who maybe didn't hear his message the first time or, or maybe transplants who aren't yet engaged in local politics. Um, and then the other side of the turnout is um, whether Calderones and Tate's former former base, you know, switches sides. I would say the big question is, do Denverites want to continue on the same path that they've been going on for eight years, or do they want to change the direction? Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. David Sachs is on the city beat for Denverite, which is now part of Colorado Public Radio. Again, the runoff election is Tuesday, June 4th, but ballots go out in the mail starting this coming Monday. Fifty years ago, Americans walked on the moon. 
Now the Trump administration wants a sequel. Here's Vice President Mike Pence. At the direction of the President of the United States, it is the stated policy of this administration and the United States of America to return American astronauts to the moon within the next five years. This week, the administration asked Congress to add $1.6 billion to NASA's budget for what it called a down payment on the mission. Our next guest, CU astrophysicist Jack Burns, is helping guide the project. Burns is often in Washington these days, working with the White House, NASA, and private companies on this lunar plan. Jack, welcome back to the program. Well, thanks, Ryan. It's great to be back with you today. Why this urgency to return to the moon? Well, I think that the administration saw that NASA and our space program really had been languishing over the last decade or so. Um, We really weren't going anywhere. Um, We were – the shuttle program had ended um, and there was really a certain lack of direction. So um, I believe that the White House, the Space Council all believed that a a bold goal to return to the moon in uh, only five years would get the engine of space exploration started again. Is it space exploration for space exploration's sake? What What's the larger motivation other than energizing an agency? You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and it is beyond that because um, it's very different today than it was uh, back in the 60s and 70s where we were talking about an all-government program. Today – um, we have a combination of partners. We have um, companies like SpaceX, like uh, Lockheed Martin here in Colorado, uh, who are intimate partners uh, and uh, expending some of their own resources on uh, return to the moon as well as uh, uh, orbital missions. And then there's international partners as well uh, that have been very successful in working with the with the space station. So it's, it's exploration in the sense of also getting a space economy uh, underway. And it's exploration too of um, – Uh, of science in understanding our origins uh, by looking at the moon as a kind of history book of where we came from. Why the moon and not, if you want to be bold, Mars, much farther away, of course? Well, Ryan, it's really both. Um, I think one of the things that's important um, is to recognize that we're on a sustainable path, which is very different than Apollo, which uh, ended in 1972 after the political goals of beating the old Soviet Union to the moon really ended. Today, what we're looking at is um, using the moon as a stepping stone to Mars. Uh, The moon is nearby. It's a lot easier to get to. We have the technology to do it. Mars is a lot harder to do. It's a lot further away. It takes um, additional technology. So um, having this uh, two-step process of the moon uh, to uh, get our space legs back again, if you will, uh, because it's been almost 50 years since we've been on another planetary body, uh, and then a a bolder plan to um, get to Mars uh, towards the middle of the century is uh, is one that's going to, do, to lead to a sustainable uh, space program, I believe. There's a touch of poetry here because the lunar mission is called Artemis. Can we explain that just briefly? 
Yes, uh, it's a great name, I think. Artemis is the twin sister of Apollo in Greek mythology. So it's a very appropriate name for this new uh, mission to the moon. Ah, given the history of the Apollo missions. Okay, what is it that the the moon helps us refine uh, that eventually gets us to Mars? What can we learn and what can we achieve perhaps on the moon that makes that journey easier? Well, one of the new things that we've learned in the last decade or so that's different than the end of Apollo is that the moon has water. It has water at its poles uh, and a substantial amount in permanently shadowed craters. In that sense, it's more like Mars. Um, and learning how to um, mine water from the moon and um, – for example, turn it into rocket fuel uh, is an invaluable uh, resource in space because we don't have to drag all of that very heavy, very expensive rocket fuel from the Earth. Uh, when we go to Mars, we're going to have to, on day one, learn how to live off the land, including mining water on Mars and also turning it into rocket fuel for a uh, return mission. So that's just one of the ways in which uh, the moon is going to facilitate our ability to be able to live and work um, on uh, sustainably on Mars. In other words, you would build a rocket fuel plant of some kind on the moon? I mean, water is water's great, but water is not jet fuel, you know? Well, that's right. But it, but it really is uh, because water is hydrogen and oxygen. And rocket fuel is also hydrogen and oxygen. Mm. So you break up the water into its components. You have to do a lot of additional chemical processing. It's not a trivial process. Recombine and you've got liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen, uh, cryogenically cooled uh, that will serve as the kind of rocket fuel not only to get you back off the moon but also you can envision having um, cryogenic uh, fuel depots in space that uh, can be used uh, by future missions to Mars uh, or elsewhere in the solar system. How sophisticated do you think this is I don't know if the word is colony or base. Uh, how sophisticated do you think that presence would be on the moon? Well, I think that the, the, the president's plan called for um, a quick return of humans to the moon in 2024, right. leading to a permanent presence uh, at an outpost in uh, 2028. That outpost I see is very similar to uh, the Antarctic station that is run by the National Science Foundation. That is, uh, you have scientists, engineers, explorers uh, who uh, come for trips to the Antarctic to uh, for science expeditions. In some cases, they um, – they uh, stay uh, over the long uh, night uh, in the Antarctic for six months. The same thing is probably going to be true on the moon with the outposts uh, hosting scientists uh, to come for anything from a few weeks stay to maybe a year stay. Help us contrast the journey to the moon versus the journey to Mars. Um, I said, of course, that the journey to Mars is much longer, but help us understand the the difficulties and the differences. Indeed, indeed. It is, uh, it is uh, different. It is uh, much more feasible, much easier to uh, get to the moon. It's only three days away. 
uh, for one thing. So it's a short trip. Um, if there's a problem underway, uh, then returning astronauts from the moon to the Earth is uh, is much more feasible. Yeah. Uh, furthermore, the uh, gravity on the moon is only one-sixth that of the Earth, um, and uh, it's about half that of Mars. So it allows um, uh, retro-propulsion landing on uh, the moon with technology that we already have. So contrast that now to Mars. Mars takes – about eight or nine months using current uh, liquid propulsion systems, liquid rocket fuel systems, to get to Mars. And then because of the um, alignment of Mars and the Earth, you really have to stay on Mars for a year uh, and then nine months back. So when you go to Mars, you're there for a a two-and-a-half-year expedition. Furthermore, when you get to Mars, uh, Mars is very difficult to land on. The U.S. is the only country to successfully land any spacecraft on Mars still today. Hmm. Um, you have to go through an atmosphere. Uh, it's the worst of both worlds. The atmosphere is is uh, dense enough that it requires a heat shield, but it's not dense enough for parachutes to work like they do on the Earth to slow the rockets down. So what you have to do is you have to have what is called a supersonic retropropulsion. That is, you have to fire up rockets while you're still going faster than the speed of sound Mm. to uh, be able to land on Mars. Frankly, we don't have that technology in place yet today. Jack, American presidents have set lofty goals for space before. President George W. Bush actually planned to be on the moon by 2015. That's three years ago now. uh, And he wanted to push past that. With the experience and knowledge gained on the moon, we will then be ready to take the next steps of space exploration, human missions to Mars, and to worlds beyond. Now, Bush's successor, Barack Obama, had a different idea. We've set a goal uh, to let's ultimately get to Mars. Uh, A good pit stop is an asteroid. What makes you think President Trump's got a chance of getting this done? Well, Ryan, I think what's different this time than um, either uh, of the Bush's plans, so uh, George H.W. Bush also had a plan in the early 90s, um, is the um, price tag. Uh, Those previous missions were all governmental programs um, using um, governmental rockets that, uh, frankly, required um, $100-plus billion more. Today, we have the technology in place and we have the partnership Mm. with companies in other countries that um, uh, allows us to be able to do a return to the moon with a public-private academic partnership that uh, has this kind of collaboration that would keep the cost down. So, for example, yesterday, um, NASA Administrator Bridenstine put forward a request of a, an additional $1.6 billion for the lunar mission, which is far short of the, um, the large price tag um, of a decade ago. So, among other things, it's affordable. But also, uh, the moon is hot right now. That is, internationally, we have individual companies as well as other countries that have set the moon as a target. So we're going to be doing this in partnership um, with, uh, with others. The $1.6 billion described as a 
a down payment that's by no means the whole pro- program. I want to ask you the perennial question around space exploration. Why spend money on this when it could be funneled into climate change mitigation or you know homelessness or peace negotiations back on Earth? Well, it's a great question, and it's one that's been asked since the Apollo program, and the answer is we should be able to do both. A great country like the United States with the economic resources and especially the booming economy that we have today um, is one that should be able to think uh, boldly about exploration. Exploration has always been part of our DNA as a human civilization, Um, and doing this to understand uh, not just the moon, but really understand our own origins to be able to, um, as I do, use the moon also as a uh, base to look uh, beyond at the distant universe is something that um, we should, as a human species, uh, be able to do. That coupled with the fact that, the again, the price tag is modest, NASA's total budget uh, is only four-tenths of one percent of the federal budget. So it's not like it's eating up a lot of, um, of resources right now. Jack, thanks for being with us. You bet. Glad to do it, Ryan. Jack Burns is an astrophysicist at CU Boulder. He served on President Trump's Transition Committee for the Space Program and now helps guide the administration's plan for lunar missions. Okay, let's remember a Colorado man now who left his mark on space exploration. Dixie Reinhardt designed the space gloves used in the Apollo missions. He was also the inventor of a popular hand warmer called the Toaster Mitten. Oh, and flexible ski boots based on spacesuit technology. Reinhardt died last month, but not before packing a lot into his 80 years. He was a clown and could balance five folding chairs on his chin. He wrote and performed award-winning bagpipe music, restored Lincoln Continentals, was a playwright and poet, and he had a passion for American Indian culture, which led to his adoption by two tribes. Dixie Reinhardt spent his last three decades on the Braveheart Ranch near tiny Kelowna, Colorado, on the western slope. One of his closest friends, fellow inventor Bob Robbins, says the term Renaissance man fit Reinhardt like a glove, maybe a space glove. And if I could summarize anything about Dixie, I would say that um, Leonardo da Vinci said, look to the natural world for solutions. And Dixie was a firm believer. He spent much time looking for antiquities and the ancient ways of doing things. Some of his glove inspiration was derived from plants and uh, prehistoric love patterns. Robbins calls Reinhardt a natural genius, a man without a college degree who could solve complex problems in unique ways. When the two met, Reinhardt was working on other crucial projects for space travel. Including the FCS and the UCTA. Those initials stand for the fecal containment subsystem and the urine conduction and transfer assembly because always everyone always asks how is that dealt with and uh, Dixie was definitely one of the developers of that and there were a number of unusual situations that occurred that I won't amplify during that development process. Dixie Reinhardt had a fun side. He started clowning in high school which he continued to do on the side after becoming an inventor and marrying the love of his life and having three kids. Here's his daughter, Tanya Ishikawa. I mean, he was amazing, all the different things that he did. He played banjo, he played saxophone, he could balance on his chin. 
five of those metal folding chairs. <laughs> and my brother says he even remembers sitting in one of those chairs himself and having my dad balance that on his chin. It was funny because he was doing that on the side while he was designing the spacesuit glove. She remembers how much her father would immerse himself and his family in American Indian culture. Reinhardt and his wife Carol built and sold teepees. They opened an Indian jewelry store across from the gondola in Aspen. They learned to tan animal hides with brains, a traditional technique. When he was adopted by a northern Cheyenne family, he was given the name Braveheart. This passion landed Dixie Reinhardt on the TV game show What's My Line in the 1960s. The panel failed to guess his line, which at the time was running a teepee business. In Aspen, back in the 70s, we were known to be the ones in the parade with the teepee on top of the Suburban. (laughs) My dad and myself and our Native American friends dressed up and on a float. (laughs) We had a teepee in our front yard, and we would have um, the local classes Um, in Aspen. I don't remember, actually, in any of my sister or brothers or my classes, there being any Native Americans in our classes. And so to learn about Native Americans... The classes would come out to our teepee at our house, and my dad would tell them stories and and explain things to them. Dixie Reinhardt was buried on Braveheart Ranch in the shadow of the San Juan Mountains. His body was placed in a pine coffin with an engraving of a teepee on top. It was made for him by Navajo craftsmen. He was laid to rest next to his wife, Carol, and the shrine he'd created for her. His family said he'd cried for her every day after her death three years ago. The graveside ceremony for Reinhardt reflected the many facets of his life. One of his sons read his father's favorite Bible passage. Other family members and friends read his poems. His adopted Cheyenne grandson performed an eagle feather blessing. Then, everyone put on red clown noses for the wake. Dixie Reinhardt of Kelowna, Colorado, died last month. He was 80. The back and forth between the U.S. and China on trade is intensifying. Both sides are imposing tariffs while offering hope for the negotiations. So what's the effect on one of Colorado's largest industries? Tom Lipitsky is Markets Division Director at the State Department of Agriculture. And welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me back in the studio. So late last week, President Trump raised tariffs on about $200 billion of Chinese imports. China responded earlier this week with $60 billion in tariffs on U.S. imports. What's the immediate effect on Colorado's farmers and ranchers? Well, certainly China is getting a lot of attention these days in, in the news, and, and rightly so. China's a a large current market for Colorado agriculture, and I think potentially has you know, a lot of potential in the future based on its population to be a very significant market for Colorado. That's why it's it's so important to us. But the impact of these new tariffs uh, really hit us in a couple different ways. Um, one of our large exports to China is hides and skins. And we've continued to see some deterioration in that market because of the tariffs imposed uh, last year. But this latest round uh, starts to impact some of the frozen beef exports which we'd really just started to see some real growth in in the last uh, year. So it's not just that China is an important trading partner for Colorado now, but there was uh, there is a lot of hope for the growth of that market as well. 
Absolutely. You know, when you start looking at 1.3 billion people, uh, uh, certainly a large market for us today. They're our fifth largest trading partner. But with that many people and the growth of their economy could be a very significant market in the future. Why do they like hides and skins? Just curious. Hides and skins really goes into their uh, domestic manufacturing of bags and leather goods uh, that they turn around and uh, sell across the world. And then for frozen beef, why has that been growing? And uh, why is that hard hit by this latest round? You know, the the U.S. has had kind of a tough run with China over the years. Uh, back in 2003, U.S. beef was banned from China when the, when there was a discovery of mad cow disease in the United States. I remember that. And it took until 2017 to reestablish trade with China. And so we really have just started to get our foot back in the door. And all of a sudden, we're starting to see these import tariffs come into play on frozen beef that will impede that reintroduction and uh, potentially let some of that product uh, move to other suppliers. Now, isn't there the possibility that if, if it's a multinational corporation, I don't know, something like JBS, that if they simply export from another country operations in Australia or Canada or something, they can get around this? You know, some of the large multinationals that have facilities around the world can certainly uh, juggle where they supply product from. And that's one of the reasons we work very closely with some of the smaller Colorado companies like Frontier Meats and others to really try to make sure that uh, when we're trying to get into these markets that we're really trying to promote uh, Colorado beef and and also work with these large multinationals who have the capacity to supply those markets. And what we do find oftentimes is that these buyers – are asking for product from the United States. So that does kind of tie their hands at times. Mm. And the smaller guys just don't have that kind of nimbleness. They don't have the resources of the big guys, the multinationals. That's right. Some of the smaller ones tend to be a little bit more niche markets, but China is still a very small market for beef. Uh, last year was about $4 million worth of beef in total from Colorado. But we already saw that volume in the first three months of this year. So we know that trajectory is growing and see some real opportunity now that U.S. beef had been allowed back into the market. Yeah, but these tariffs uh, may take this in a different direction, at least in the short term. What other commodities does Colorado export to China? You know, certainly there's some wheat that's exported to China. But probably the, the most impact on the grain side comes from soybeans. And you might say, well, Colorado doesn't grow a lot of soybeans, and we don't. But the impact of the Chinese tariffs on soybeans from the United States yeah. really has the impact of putting price pressure downward on soybeans, and that drags corn prices down. And we're certainly a large producer of corn, and so that impact of the soybean um, tariffs has that impact uh, on our corn producers as well. Help me understand that connection. It's fascinating. Well, what happens is if we're not selling as many soybeans abroad, those soybeans are back in the U.S. market. Uh -huh. And that creates competition with other commodities like corn that can be used for feed for livestock. Got it. And uh, it really uh, hammers our, our corn producers as well. So the claim, of course, is that China hasn't been playing fair and that the U.S. is right to seek a reset. But there's the question of whether this is the right way to go about it, uh, that ultimately it's producers here who suffer uh, they point to the fact that the government is trying to free up rescue money for farmers. What are your thoughts about this approach by the administration right now? Well, I mean, I think as we look around, around our ag community, the uh, the farmers and ranchers continue to be supportive of the Trump administration. 
and uh, their approach to tackle China and try to deal with some of these unfair trade practices. You know, the approach, the methodology, I think everybody has a differing opinion as to whether it's right or wrong. But I think producers here in Colorado remain focused on the long term in the hope that uh, working with China today can create a, a, a positive market and positive opportunities for the next 20 to 50 years down the road, even though it's pretty darn painful today. I know there's a lot of focus on China right now, but are there other trouble spots in the globe where suppliers are having issues? You know, we've certainly had a lot of trade issues in the news in the last year. We've got the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, mm -hmm. which has yet to be fully ratified by the uh, participating countries. And there's some some sticking points there yet in terms of, you know, the, uh, the tariffs that the U.S. imposed on aluminum and steel imports from those countries. And then Mexico and Canada turned around and put retaliatory tariffs on some of our food and ag products coming into their markets. So until we can really resolve some of those things, the full benefits of the new agreement, even when ratified, won't be fully felt by agriculture. You have talked about the promise of the Chinese market, but I want to talk a little bit about Japan because you see that really as an emerging market for Colorado. What's the opportunity there? You know, Japan has been a, a steady, steady market for Colorado for years, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, all the talk was about the TPP or Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. Yeah. And one of the first actions of the Trump administration was to remove the U.S. from those negotiations. And that's why it's so critical today that we're having these bilateral negotiations with, with the Japan. Because what happened was those other 11 countries moved forward without the United States. And now we're finding the U.S. at a competitive disadvantage in Japan to some of those countries, particularly Canada and Australia when it comes to beef. It's beef. It's beef as well there. And right now we have – the U.S. faces about a 38 percent tariff on, on beef imports. And uh, Canada and Australia have a lower tariff, so it makes our product less competitive in the marketplace. In just a few seconds, based on what you know, what will it take for this trade war to end with China? I think I'm optimistic about the trade war with China. I think uh, you know China recognizes that if they want to continue to be an economic force, that they may have to make some changes to, to their uh, trading practices and business practices. And I think uh, we just look toward the long term. And uh, agriculture is very good at looking longer term. And even though it's painful today, see the benefits 10, 15, 20 years down the road. A sort of hold tight mentality. Thanks for being with us, Tom. Thank you, Ryan. Tom Lipitsky is the Markets Division Director at the Colorado Department of Agriculture. And we talked about the effect on Colorado of this trade war with China. Well, gun rights activists and Republican officials want to recall a suburban Denver lawmaker who sponsored the red flag gun bill. For this lawmaker, it was personal. His son was killed in the Aurora theater shooting. The recall effort is new territory for the state GOP. CPR's public affairs reporter, Benta Berkland, spoke with my colleague, Mike Lamp. Well, who is this state representative? And tell me more about the law that he sponsored. Tom Sullivan is a freshman lawmaker. He was elected in November in the Democratic blue wave. He defeated a Republican incumbent. 
His son, Alex, was killed in the Aurora theater shooting, and that's what really spurred Sullivan to to get involved with politics. He's testified at the Capitol on various gun legislation proposals over the years and was one of the main sponsors of the red flag law. It was recently signed by Governor Jared Polis and goes into effect in 2020. And what it would do is allow a family member or law enforcement to petition a court and ask for the temporary removal of someone's firearms if they're determined determined to be a danger to themselves or others. There's a a two-week period and then another hearing. And gun rights advocates really feel like it violates Second Amendment rights, could be used too broadly, doesn't have adequate due process protections in place, and don't feel like it will actually make people safer. And Sullivan has told CPR this bill was was very important to him. He's going to frame it on his wall as a reminder of why he ran for office in the first place because of a very personal family tragedy. But as you say, there are opponents to this law, and Representative Sullivan is now facing a recall effort. And this is not the first time that lawmakers who have helped pass gun restrictions have been targeted uh, with recall. That happened in 2013. Absolutely. That was when the Democratic-controlled legislature passed universal background checks and high-capacity magazine bans. And two Democratic senators were recalled, including the Senate president at the time. Fast forward, this is the first time Democrats have passed stricter gun laws since those recalls. Behind that recall was Rocky Mountain gun owners and the grassroots What makes this very different is it's linked directly to the state Republican Party that's initiating the recall. Right. What about that? Republicans um, officially being part of this recall effort? It's a huge shift. And people have told me it's really unprecedented. The vice chair of the state Republican Party filed the request to collect signatures for this recall. And she says her name's Christy Burton Brown. She told me it's not just about the red flag gun law. It's about a broader Democratic agenda, including an oil and gas measure, changes to comprehensive sex education. She's also not supportive of Tom Sullivan being in favor of a bill that would have made it harder to exempt a child potentially from getting vaccines. She said it's a bigger landscape than just the gun bill. Well, does that undermine the argument that it's the gun bill, what some people refer to it as, you know, unconstitutional, that is the motivation behind this recall effort? If it's just everything that the Democrats are in favor of, you know, is that a way to mount a recall effort? Some people will say, no, it's not the right way to mount a recall effort. Certainly people feel like, especially on the left, Sullivan ran on passing stricter gun laws. That's what he wanted to do. That is what he did. And hey, if you don't like it, just wait till the next election and vote him out of office. I I talked to former GOP chair Ryan Call, and he's the one who said it's such a dramatic departure from the historic role of the Republican Party. And he said he's just surprised the Republicans are going down this route, given that the actions they're upset about are pretty much what Democratic lawmakers said they would do during the campaign. Call said it would be more likely for the party to get involved if there was really some ethical breach or or something kind of egregious happened while someone was in office. We'll see how it plays out. Right. Well, have they thought about how, you know, it kind of looks taking on a father who lost his son in a high profile shooting, a a fairly sympathetic uh, individual? They're not worried about uh, the, the way that's going to play kind of in public. I think it depends on who you talk to. Some Republicans are worried about that, especially so soon after Colorado has grappled with a school shooting 
And prior to that, schools were locked down recently for fear of a school shooting. So this is an issue that's on people's minds. It's going to bring in a lot of national money potentially to help Sullivan. There's also a lot of concern from some Republicans, you know, after suffering huge election losses in Colorado last November, it's really a time for the Republican Party to regroup and figure a way forward. Some folks are very nervous that this type of recall could detract from other big priorities, making sure Senator Cory Gardner keeps his seat, maintaining the seats they have in the state legislature, potentially picking up more seats, protecting vulnerable incumbents, and fighting back against a tax question that's going to be on the ballot this fall. So it's this idea of we've got to pick our battles as a party. And is this the right battle to pick? Do we have any reaction so far from Representative Sullivan? The reaction from from Sullivan is he won't be bullied. And he feels like the gun lobbies bullied him. And he said he will keep his promises to his community, to his constituents. And He has no regrets about sponsoring this bill. Uh, He said his son being murdered was the hardest thing he's ever dealt with. And these types of threats don't scare him. And he said it'll never stop him from pursuing what he thinks are the best policies to protect other families from experiencing what he had to go through. That is CPR's public affairs reporter Benta Berkland speaking with Mike Lamp. Finally today, we are looking forward to a road trip. Next month, Colorado Matters will broadcast from Grand Junction, our studio on Main Street. And on the night of June 21st, that's a Friday, we'll tape an episode at the Avalon Theater downtown. My guest will be best-selling Colorado author Peter Heller. He has a new wilderness thriller called The River. Tickets for that event are on sale now at CPR.org. We're also going to feature on stage the winner of our Solo on the Slope music contest. We got around 50 submissions and we'll announce the winner Friday. Until then, I want to share some of the other entries that delighted us. Frank Martin of Glenwood Springs sent us an original. His song is all about the farming community of Dove Creek, Colorado. It's in the Four Corners area. It's the pinto bean capital of the world. His tune is Dryland Farming. Father signed a note, sealed his fate, and got to work. Cleared the pinion and sage a mood and stacked the rock. Planted beans in the spring and a dust, and then he waited. Took the prayer and mission and counting on luck. Prayers are answered in the brown back of a woman. No storm could bend and no man could turn. Together they did what it took from sun up to sundown. And every season a new lesson to learn. Thunderstorms roll like dice over parcels and a Frank Martin of Glenwood Springs with Dryland Farming. It's a favorite entry in our Solo on the Slope music contest. We'll announce the winner Friday. And you can get tickets to our event at the Avalon Theater in Grand Junction, which tapes June 21st at CPR.org. 
I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.